Hello, everyone, and welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of Chai with Rai, episode seventeen to be exact. If you are a new listener, hello. I hope you're having a swell day and you got your cup of chai ready. And if you are a returning listener, hello. I also hope you're having a swell day. And thank you so much for supporting the show. Now, Chai with Rai is a show I like to call my digital jukebox of hidden gems, in which I reach out to working creatives in the entertainment and fitness industry. In the episodes, we discuss all things from life lessons to politics to socialism, culture, history, digital space, and of course, the industry itself. Now, just a little backstory of the show. Chai with Rai is a pre-recorded live show which I transfer to podcast. So to watch any of the videos of the show, simply go to YouTube and just type in Chai with Rai to find the relevant episode. I will put all the information in the bio below just to make life a little bit easier. But also, don't forget to subscribe, comment, and share this podcast. Your support really helps the show and the message of it grow. And also, don't forget to follow the amazing artists that are on the episodes. Now, without further ado, let's get into today's episode. I am so flabbergasted about today's episode, and it is all because of the guest. We have photographer, author, lecturer Sunil Gupta on the episode. It was such a pinch me moment to have him on, and when we get into the episode, when you listen to the meat of it, you will realize why. I was in such awe of Sunil and his openness to talk about things like being HIV positive and that journey for him, how his mind works, and the lines that go from his personal life into his work. And we talked about sexuality. Actually, his journey in realizing and the power of that. We even talked about douching and cruising, which was hilarious, to be honest. P.S. Just a tad about Sunil. His works have been showcased at the Barbican, Tate, Hills Gallery, Southbank Centre, just a few venues in London to name. Internationally, his works have been shown in India, Canada, Germany, France, Spain, the States, Rome, to name a few. The man has. Countless awards, has over eight books, is a lecturer, does panel talks, conferences, all whilst being a fabulous friend, a devoted husband, and just an awesome person. Okay. Also, he has been on one of my favorite podcasts, Talk Art, which I will heavily suggest for you to check out. It's by Russell Tovey and Robert Diamond, and it's just I binge it all the time. Also, I just want to tell a little backstory of the guest and how I reached out. So, a couple years ago, I went on this day to the Barbican Centre to see this exhibition called Masculinities, and it was beautiful and explored the constructs through photography and film about masculinities. Now, having seen various shows and exhibitions on the topic and having done some stuff myself, I was like, "Yeah, this is cute. Okay, this is interesting, but I want something different." So we're like 45 minutes into this exhibition, then my date drags me into the corner, just you know, like to have a little makeout session, and I come across the Nils' work, and I'm like, okay, this is different, South Asian, queer, naked, and I was like. This is very, very mesmerizing. So I basically Googled him, Instagrammed him, told him about my day, to which we laughed, and we stayed in touch. And when I launched Chai with Rai, I reached out to him, and he graciously accepted. And I'm just so grateful for that. But without further ado, I'm gonna stop rambling and get your cuppers ready, and let's get into today's episode. Also, needless to say, that day went nowhere. It was just a one-time thing. Okay. <laughs> Oh, 
through the Rolodex of work that you have and briefly what I mentioned and through the activist work that you've done with GLC, with Ken Livingstone, the books that you've published, the life experience that you have. And I think looking through your work, being at the being one of the people at the forefront of kind of like South, South Asian queer community faces and the work that you've done. Do you ever tire of kind of like these, these accolades or the work that you've done or certain things that you can be known for? Do you just want to sometimes just be like, I'm just, I'm just a guy living his dream. I'm just a nil, nothing else and things like that. Do you ever tire of anything like that? And is there a pressure for you to create certain work now? Okay, there's a multiple little <laughs> questions in that. So I'll be really honest, you know, uh, first of all, uh, I wasn't at the forefront frequently because uh, many other people were. So I was, it wasn't my job to be at the forefront. My job seemed more like a I was more interested in documenting social justice. And for that, you need to be a little bit invisible. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I went to meetings and demos and did all of that, but I was not really inclined to be in charge of any part of it, you know? So for example, when Shakti got going in London, which is the Asian gay thing that because became the yeah. Ritu's night. Uh, in the very beginning, you know, I was very happy to help out. Uh, everybody was very young. So, you know, I was already senior then, you know, compared to everybody else, uh, except for one of some of the other organizers. But, uh, and one of the people who kind of led it and wanted to lead it uh, did want, I remember a conversation where he said, uh, let's do this together. And I said, no, I didn't really think I wanted to do it because I didn't really want to lead people, you know. And yeah. first of all, I haven't, I really did gay liberation as a teenager or like as an undergraduate 18 year old in Canada. And so I didn't want to repeat it here because I felt, I feel people have to find out a little bit for themselves. That, you know, it, so today's 18 year olds need to figure I out, know. you know, <laughs> Yeah, they don't need some old person who's 25 to come and tell them something. So, especially from another, so I didn't feel like I had anything to very much to tell them. So no, I, so I didn't want to be in that kind of forefront. And the thing that plagues me all my professional life is that I went to India and made 12 pictures of Indian homosexual men because it was pressing personal need of mine to find out what's happening in the you know, motherland kind of thing. Yeah. Ever since then, people ask me, what's it like for gay Indians? And I have to remind them that, you know, India has 1 billion people and I've met 12, you know. That is not the pick, I cannot be the pick, I can't tell you what's happening in India. I can tell you what's happening to 12 of them. I can't tell you what's happening to the millions of the other ones who I never met. Right, this is one of the works, isn't it? Yeah, so I think people, I think the way our media works and the way our culture works and with all of this, excess media that we look for uh, spokespeople or experts. People become experts with data of only five, ex five examples. I've seen PhD theses that are based on a handful of people's opinions that become like India is like that. Well, obviously, yeah. how, that's not true, you know, but I think it's the nature of 
our media, like this happens. Like I sometimes when a book is published or like when the show happens, then I'm suddenly being called upon by more mainstream, like let's say BBC type media. Mm-hmm. You know, what's it like in India? I'm thinking, really, you <laughs> me? You know, like, I'm not a sociologist. You know, I will study society in that way. I take some snaps, yeah. You know, so I can tell you about those, and I can tell you about English-speaking middle-class city-dwelling guys in the north. You know, that's who I know. I've never really lived in, in Bombay or Hyderabad or Bangalore. I can't really yeah. tell you. I can guess what's happening there. And what's happening in between is complete mystery to me because I haven't really been there and experienced that. So that way, I try not be a spokesperson for gay Indians there or gay Asians here because yeah. equally, you know, I just know a handful of people. So maybe I can make a project. Maybe I need to <laughs> yeah. know more. You know, I feel like yeah. I don't know enough. I know sporadic bits. So I knew about Shakti time. And I knew a little bit later on, and then I, you know, there are gaps in it. And then uh, I'm I'm quite surprised how gay Asians in this country are still so invisible. That does surprise me. Seriously? Yeah, because I mean, I'd be talking about the 80s for heaven's sake when we were trying to become visible, and it still hasn't happened. We have Black Lives Matter, but we don't seem to have Gay Indians Matter or Gay <laughs> South Asians Matter. No, it's true. I went to it, it, been, yeah. So yeah. So that's irritating. Yeah. But then I'm not uh, the person who's going to lead some kind of uh, you know huge activism about it. Maybe you can. You're the right age. <laughs> I f- I mean, like I get into trouble in regards to conversations like that all the time. And I think one of the things we will talk about is this political term, which you have done a project on, which is the life of black experiences in it. Whereas I was talking about this with somebody who has actually just recently launched a queer magazine online. Uh-huh. And I was just like, it's interesting. And one of my questions here was, I think as a community, right, as as South Asians who have migrated like second generation or first generations or as LGBTQ plus people, there's, there's a sort of, I, I don't know if I can speak for everybody. I just speak from my own experience. There's a sort of, and even being an artist, there's a sort of being wanted to be either accepted or normalized. But then I think within our own sort of communities, we have subsectors. So if you look at South Asian community, just as a whole in terms of itself, you have like Malayalis, you have Gujaratis, you have Sri Lankans, you have Pakistanis. And then, you know, there's a hierarchy of system in that within, or like a better off thinking of, you know, what religion is better. And then within queer community, you know, there's like, you have the twinks and then you have the jocks, then you have the daddies, then you have the bears and then being South Asian and gay. And then you're being told either you're a fetish or, you know, you're, you're this or that. And then you're always constantly fighting. And I'm just like, where does one fit? Where do you, and where do you have the fight for what exactly so yes you have black lives matter and yes you have pride and then you have black pride but then i'm like where's the asian pride where's where's the representation for what's happening you know in punjab right now or what, what's happening with section 377 like so many things and right now we're 11 countries it's still there's still a death penalty for same-sex activity pakistan being one of them or beirut or all of these things and i'm just like where, where do we go? If you feel strongly enough about it, you go back to yourself. You yeah. can't rely on other people. That's been my experience. If you're waiting for it to happen, it ain't going to happen. You've got to make it happen if you feel 
like something needs sorting out. I mean, uh, I found myself back in India in the early, in the mid 2000s amongst a very new generation who were coming out of uh, graduate school. So uh, maybe in their early 20s. And they were completely different. They wanted change and they wanted it now and they were not going to wait. You know, my generation in India said they would, India is like timeless and ancient and it doesn't, change is not what it does. You know, it does what it always did. It's a traditional place. They didn't even think it was possible to change. But now, so then when I suddenly back there after 40 years, I see all this very, you know, articulate demand for change and they got it in the sense that they did manage to change the law uh none of those kids that i knew then who are now beyond marriageable age let's say in indian terms no, because that's a big anxiety I yeah. have not given in you know they're not married they're living gay lifestyles they're living with partners they're living with gay friends it's not that different from some circles of people here in london so I think that they are leading the way, you know, and they're not following in the footsteps of sad old gay men like me, you know, who got married and played along because we didn't think we had a choice. So, yeah, I think, uh, so my work coming back to that, that has been to try to be in these moments of change and uh, with a camera. So this young group of kids was actually formally organized into an activist group and mm -hmm. They invited me in, although I was older than their parents. I did. I joined them. It was, uh, it saved my whole experience of being there. You know, so my, my life was transformed. I had these very interesting, articulate, young queer people to hang out with, who's, and, you know, who's uh, basically chatted about having as much sex as possible. <laughs> and or otherwise they were discussing politics because yeah in, in, loads of stuff needs doing it wasn't just 377 in gay but india is full of stuff that needs sorting out altogether you know so uh actually in fact i just saw there was something passed me by either in the paper or on social media some woman got herself a certificate saying she's managed to erase both caste and religion from her identity officially as a piece of paper. What, in India or in the in, UK? Yeah, in India. No, no, in India. Wow. I mean, so this is what how the people are really thinking. So those two things really have to go, you know, like really who cares about religion and caste? It really, you know, yeah. they have to put it aside because that's where all these hierarchies come from. I mean, you described this very interesting regional mix of it should be a positive thing that there are Malus and there are Punjabis and there are, yeah. you know, Bengalis and, and there's people from Sindh and whatever. And why should it matter if they're Hindu or Muslim or, or Buddhist or whatever, you know? So, and then the whole caste thing is ridiculous. Uh, oh, God. You know, that who's a Jat and who's this and all of that. And that all needs to go as well. Let's talk about just queer experience from watching It's a Sin and like when I was growing up and yeah. watching things like Queer as Folk and there were these kind of like... No, I think what I, I, think what yes. I do want to say before I forget is yes, that yes, please, please. when you lived in that period that covered in It's a Sin, uh, do you remember at the beginning some of them were like not feeling part of it? Yes. It was something happening over there. And, uh, but I think the 80s, there was so much oppression from the tabloid press and from the state and from the police and from section 28 and then from AIDS that it kind of forced 
a hell of a lot of people to A, come out and B, get together in a way that they might not have. So people were much more like politicized. So when you had Chich, if you, you know, if you, if you had a hookup, people would talk about 28. Yeah. They talk, like it wasn't just, people were wanting to talk about this, which is what I found in Delhi just now. People, it wasn't just in the sex, there was also this other stuff. But what I find more recently is that because we don't have those kind of police harassment, section 28, you know, killer diseases around, People have become, what shall we say, a little bit complacent. They think everything is fine. So I like to remind us that everything is only fine because we are vigilant and we have the law on our side. But you saw what happened in India. The law was changed and it was changed twice. It just, if Boris wanted to change the law tomorrow, he could. Anyone can change Agreed. the law, you know. So uh, you can't just think, well, it's, it's like an on, you know, uh, expansive onward Things get better and better. They don't. Things can do a U-turn. Look what happened in Germany in the 1930s. That is huge gay culture that was destroyed, you know, in the middle of the 1930s. Yeah. Do you think it's a kind of, it's just a simple yes or no, but I, I don't know if I sometimes follow into this. Like I follow politics and I, I like to be knowledgeable and I, I will admit to the fact that I'm ignorant on a lot of things. But do you think that it's kind of, if you're, from the LGBTQ plus community or regardless just of that, that in today's age, we can't, we can't be complacent when it comes to politics and social issues, that we need to be knowledgeable about certain things and not just live in our own sort of little bubble. Absolutely, yeah. So that's, there's always been that tension <laughs> because we talk about the community, yes. but then half the community is happy just to go shopping. Well, you know, it's like in the 80s when a lot of us who were Asian were black identified in that political post-colonial way. Mm -hmm. The first problem was that the other half of the Asians didn't think they were black. That, I mean, so immediately there was this crisis. And so, uh, so you know, so that, but we, we refer to everybody as the community. I mean, even in, in not just the Asians, but I mean, look at the the, uh, the mainstream white people, the, uh, we have plenty of lovely Tory homosexuals, you know, we had a Tory prime minister. I mean, yeah. so, you know, there's gay right-wing writers, you know, who spread ideas. So, you know, there, it's not like, uh, you know, not everybody's gay and left-wing and, you know, trying to, you know <laughs> what I mean? True. No, no, that you is know, very true. Uh, that is very uh, true. In your last talk, which I was, um, I watched, which was Artist Talk, I think it was with the Photographer's Gallery, you were doing that, and you talked about, it was in regards to Grinder, and what you, I think if I'm paraphrasing, it was in regards to the detachment of community that you have nowadays. Now yeah. everything is very much just like bam, bam, bam. And I was like, it's interesting you say that, because the amount of hookups from all of these apps I have versus the amount of people that I've met who I have genuinely had conversations with and not hooked up at the end. But maybe that's just me as a person that I just didn't want to hook up at the end of it. But is that just a perception? Is that a common thing or, yeah? Well, no, I find that uh, back before the apps, when uh, one had to go out physically somewhere, uh, cruising, let's say, yeah. uh, whether to a park <laughs> or a bar or, or common or wherever, 
or to the Hayward Galleries coffee shop. That was a good place in the old days. Or but, the saunas, or, or the sauna. No, but I'm talking about just like casually out in a bar. Oh, casually. Place. Got it, got it, got it. Yeah. But even the saunas and the bars, so going to a bar. But what particularly strikes me, especially, I think even more in relation to Asians, and it's even particularly in relation to my Indian experience in India itself, where there are no bars. So then, so you discover places and then, which are not labeled, and then you find like-minded people there. And so you begin returning there. And over a period of time, you begin to recognize your fellow homosexuals who also keep returning there. And gradually, the space, just by existing, becomes a kind of communal space where mm -hmm. relationships now start forming from the familiarity of being in the same situation and having finally being able to if you like, meet and just exchange glances or maybe even say hello to somebody recognizably in your own situation. Uh, and I think communities need a geography, they need a location. And also these spaces mean that you have no idea who it's going to be. One of the things I loved about cruising and having sex that way is even just going to any random London bar, I don't mean in any extraordinary way, uh, even in the West End or something, you have no idea who you're going to meet, you know, uh, and your your own prejudices get come get confronted that way, you know. I used to be very aggressive at this because I would I learned from the trade in North America, so what I was not afraid. <laughs> you just walk up. I came to London, nobody would speak to you. I would just walk up to them, and they were just terrified. Somebody All spoke right. to me. Oh my God! Someone said something, you know. So, uh, so no. So I would walk up to people, and once this guy said, and I said, you know, like, hello, who are you, and what do you do, and all that was rattling on. And then he said, well, I sell ties in Harrods, and I didn't know what to say after that. I had to kind of <laughs> take. <laughs> I thought, you know, that's terrible. I have some lack of understanding and extreme prejudice about this. I yeah. have to leave, you know. But so what I mean is that you could, it could be a plumber, it could be a lawyer, it could be anybody, you know. Very true. So now the opposite's happening now with the apps because it's a menu-driven thing. Ah, uh, yes. So you say exactly what you want and you get, can have sizes and all the rest of it and cool. colors and and you respond like that to people who who you you might fit the kind of stereotype things that they put up. So the element of, or the possibility of meeting some complete random person you never thought of ever, yeah. Uh, isn't going to happen. I mean, one of my interesting uh, sexual encounters in Canada was with a guy who turned out to be a, uh, an indigenous rent boy. Oh, wow. And it never occurred to me that uh, that I'd run into someone like that, you know, because like they all live on reservations somewhere. So you hardly, if you want to see a native, you would go to somewhere out. Yeah. You know, they don't suddenly appear in your street and want to have sex with you. That's so... So that was a revelation. And he thought it was very kinky that I was Indian and he was Indian, but we were like different kinds of Indians. So, and he never met one either. I never met one of his guys. He never met one of mine. We spent the whole time discussing how we were different. So, but had we been on Grindr, that would have never happened. I think it's fascinating you say that because I think I have always had that sort of experience with people where I meet people. Okay, so I had rules. I don't know if this works in in cruising because I've only cruised a couple of times in my life. Really? Um, and there's there's this famous place in terms of parks 
because I'm not I, I think had I not been for apps I would be a 40 year old virgin I would have not done anything I would have been really? married with kids yeah because I'm very as, as well, stuff am, happens everywhere yeah but as much as I am in performance I don't but in regards to going back to rules the there was this situation I always had if it was to meet somebody I would have to walk with you outside for five minutes I would have to suss you there would be certain questions there was a whole method we would have to exchange chewing gums because some people's breaths can be funky and I don't want that like oh they, they were just rules that I had to follow just in order to So you you don't mean you've never you didn't grow up giving people blowjobs in bushes or anything No okay so this oh, is You can't be so picky about what they Can I just say like. if, if we're being very explicit I don't know what it is but I I hate blowjobs I literally hate them Really I hate them oh. um I don't know what it is. I just something about it. I just never liked. Maybe there's but, classes. You could go to some classes about <laughs> it. No, oh there God. are. I'm sure there are like sex positive classes about Probably. it. Probably. Yeah. I think yeah. There's just something about it from watching. I think like I, when I was growing up, I was very much like I'm gonna get married to a woman. I'm gonna be a doctor. I'm gonna have two kids, and the picture perfect life will always be. I'm leaving the house. I kiss you on your forehead. You fix my tie, and that's it. but then i started dating girls and i started dating guys and then i was like maybe i'm gay maybe i'm bi maybe i'm pansexual then i was like this and i think it wasn't until maybe 2 years ago that i've kind of come into going away from my horish ways come into like my skin and acknowledged who i am and talked about it with my family and don't care about the perception or the cultural stigma anymore but and i think i associate sex and certain sex acts with that that is right oh, okay the shame you mean the shame yeah the shame of yeah. certain things as well and but what the, about getting a blow job maybe how do you feel about that maybe it's it's it can even... I, I, can <laughs> I, I think because my early sexual this has literally turned into therapy <laughs> oh. my early sexual experiences were very much like when i was high or when i was drunk or when i would meet so i think and oh, like so you, through, you didn't know what was happening to you then no, no through watching I, porn and i think like yeah. now that i'm kind of come to senses it's it's a whole different ball game and now it's like trying to understand things but did you first question to you if you don't mind me asking you no. and you can say no when was your sort of acceptance with who you were or who you are sorry not who you were that's paraphrasing it very incorrectly no i'm and still did... around that's true <laughs> <laughs> i didn't mean that i meant it or do you still struggle with certain things like i don't know talking about it with your parents i think that i'm i'm 29 i literally just had the conversation with my family and just certain things like all of my life eating this sort of situation up like what my mom my grandmother think what my mom this person think or i'm not gay i'm bi i'm bi i'm this no i'm straight i'm going to be with a girl or like did you go through this or were you at a very young age just no. you know who you were i didn't know who i was because at a very young age we had no language for it at a very young age i was actually growing up in delhi where nobody talked about it there was i never heard any vocabulary you know spoken vocabulary around it but everybody was very physical with you you know my dad would carry me everywhere you know he was thrilled he had a son and all that indian father business and then i had my i lived in a little suburb in delhi and so all the houses were open and all the kids played out we never saw the parents yeah and so i had my little boy gang from the age of about 6 onwards i had this little 
gang of boys and we would hang out we would play games and the games would get physical and we were either fighting or we were having we were discovering sex together oh really yeah and then we would like we would line up when i was 10 we'd line up and we'd get the smallest one called papu or something and little papu <laughs> would have to give everybody a wank you know so no! like that oh my god so there was tons of it and i began to discover at that very early age how i i then discovered the spaces the places where you can find other people and then i got interested in slight in what i thought were like older guys but you no know, they might have been 12 or 14 but i they felt like older guys yeah i think the big difference i i remember the difference was that because we used to all like pretend wank and all of this but like not obviously nothing was happening nothing was coming yeah. out so to speak so then when we met the all slightly older ones who actually produced you know yeah. something uh that was a revelation you know so that became more exciting it was like, aha there's something because i can remember the first time somebody came in my mouth that was like i wasn't i didn't i wasn't expecting i didn't know that was a consequence i thought you just sucked it off and like and then you uh, after a while you got bored and you stopped i didn't realize it was there was going to be a consequence oh god so yeah so uh but anyway it appealed to me so uh, i mean i it was very exciting so everywhere i went i found i could have sex and this was in india you know in public transport so uh, yeah on buses on trains uh, anywhere in a crowd and i i've and you just get a sick sense about it and you know honestly most indian men are so starved of sex they'll do anything with anyone given half a chance so and then, you know women were like uh, not to be touched and all of that so and were being preserved and what not and then suddenly then i was in my mid teens at the height of all of this by now i'm having like lots of sex i know where to get it i know which lanes to walk by and all of that and i know which kinds of people might catch your eye and all that and i know when somebody's actually leaning against my butt on a bus with that in mind and who's just doing it accidentally because you know there's all of that how do you know when you I have a develop question. a sense about that and so you can so when i went I to have... canada it all came to an end so i am so it. sorry to interrupt but i have a question <laughs> yeah the art of douching has just come in in like in recognition of my like how much there is and when i was watching that scene in it's a sin and you watch pornos or you watch like all of like like i was saying queer as folk or all of these movies there's never any like logic or science behind what you have to do so whilst all of this is happening are people knowledgeable about the fact that when you're having sex you have to douche or it was just like no happening? i mean you first no when i was a kid it was happening outside it was in public there was no washing or douching or anything so the the first time someone tried to fuck me was by when i was a teenager in india was to throw me behind a bush into some muddy ground and get on top of me and all you know and the only lube he had was spit and it was a terrifying experience and i couldn't get him off me and it was all i remember from that was it was kind of very painful and unsuccessful probably mm-hmm. for both of us uh but i remember having my face buried in the dirt and no no this all this i never heard of all of this like nice stuff and happening nice, that all nice. that all happened in canada when i eventually got a hold of it but my first year was a disaster in canada oh god yes, i didn't so know how to have i didn't know how to get late but there were no public spaces that i could recognize people everybody walked like safe distance away from everybody else there was no casual touching so none of the techniques i knew worked and besides uh, you know i 
there were foreigners like Westerners in India, but you know, I didn't really think of them as possible sexual partners and all that. So, and then, but then I was very lucky. I moved to Canada in 1969. So I was in September, the September after Stonewall, literally. So by the mm -hmm. time I was in, a year later, I was in college. And suddenly I knew the thing that I liked had a name and it was having a revolution and everybody was coming out. So at 17, I suddenly came out as well because I thought, this is, that's me. I recognize what they're talking about. And, and then I made myself very knowledgeable about it because there was a lot of activism and gay liberation activity. And we had a student group and we read papers from sociology and we, I, belonged to a gay literary society. We read novels. We read as much as we could. You know, could be, was, that's all we did as students. In fact, I think I got more knowledgeable than I had experienced at one point. And then it was all very lefty. And then we wrote manifestos about how cruising was so capitalistic and how you shouldn't do that. And so, so community was all. And so seven of us from the literary group would go to a bar together and try and find a whole bunch of other guys so that it was not competitive, you know, one-to-one. -one, you versus me. No, otherwise what happens is that you know, a couple of friends go to a bar and then immediately start chasing after somebody else and then they just dump you there. Right. What's the point of that's not much of an evening. Next thing I know, my friend has gone off with someone, left me high and dry at the bar, you know. Uh, there have been many outings like that. So, yeah. So, yeah, I know. So what I mean is that I got, uh, I went from a lot of sex to a lot of politics in, and with a name, like very fast. So I didn't have time to have shame or have doubts or second thoughts or anything. And at 17, one day I came home and I came out and I said, you know, parents, I'm gay, you know, like you to like it or lump it. And uh, unfortunately, I think my parents thought I was having a crisis and that was, I was asking for help. So they, they decided they were going to try and help me, you know, but no, but it wasn't that. And to be honest, you know, my mother just cried because she never, I think to her, the whole idea that any of her children was having actual sex was like unbelievable. <laughs> any kind of sex so her, her response to anything like that was to weep and but my father was trying to be like very sensible suddenly uh mentioned therapy i never i didn't even know the guy had heard of therapy in his life he never mentioned it before i never mentioned it again then he said it's a phase you get over it and then in the end he compromised he said look in our culture you know us asians you get married and you have children and then you have sex with whoever you want nobody gives a flying <laughs> Nobody actually gives a fuck who you're sleeping with. You know, they don't care. What they don't want you to do is to come out. Just shut up and do it. That's what he did. All Indian guys do it. They sleep with anybody. They don't talk Wait, about it. Wait, this is your therapist or your dad said this? My dad said this. Very pragmatic. You know, he was right because everything goes on in India. Nobody talks about it. So this idea, I think that the, the foreign and difficult idea for Asians in the West is that this, this coming out, why broadcast yeah. it? You know, why can't you just have your wife and kid and then do it on the side like everybody else does? Everybody has a woman or a man on this side. Nobody has, a, who has a kind of 50 years of the same, well, maybe some people do, but largely people have some bits on the side. Yeah. Of whatever sex, right? So why, you could have your men on the side. So a lot of gay people of my generation in India who are married, you know, so they have this two hours between work, office and dinner. To do things. To do things, and that's when the, it happens. Wait, <laughs> and so, so it, when you're in Delhi, if you want to get laid, you just go to a flyover, you know, like Hammersmith in London, and you you can wait there. And all these commuters, they get off their mobikes or some whatever it is, or their cars, and and give you a blowjob or whatever you can get one. And so, uh, 
And you can hide your identity. If, you know, if you're on a bike, you can keep your helmet on and just have your dick out and have your face covered. And nobody well, now can with see COVID, you. you can just wear a mask and then you'll be fine. Yeah, yeah, and nobody yeah. can see you. So, yeah. yeah. So, yes, I was fortunate that way. So, I, I didn't have to go through this. Um, yeah. And then, yeah. So, that's why when we came, when it came to Shakti, I thought, I've just done it all somewhere else. I can't now do it all Start over. it again. Uh, again, and then this time I wouldn't be doing it as a participant, you know, in a way. I would be advising other, like, people with different experience in a different context. Uh, so uh, so that was, the, you know, the other thing that when I grew up, uh, not grew up, but when I landed in Canada, they were having a big crisis about the French and the English. I went to Montreal. Yeah. So they didn't care about anybody else. So they, were, you know, they weren't having an Asian problem. Yeah, the Asians were all invisible. They were all in the suburbs doing engineering and computer science. I don't know, whatever, you know, very techie things. So it wasn't until I came to London that I realized that there's an Asian problem here, you know, uh, that I was belonged to a problematic community that people didn't like. And so, so that puts a whole other shade on it, you know, because that makes it even more difficult in a way. Because one of the things we did at Shakti was uh, people didn't like, people were very afraid to go out on their own to the, on the gay scene because it was so white. I mean, I guess it still is, but people were felt anxious. So, uh, so Shakti was built around, like your program, around chai and samosa afternoons on Caledonian Road at London Friend. So that was, again, that was a... Convenient time for our young Asian boys to get away from home and not have to explain every minute what they were doing. They could be absent at 4 p.m. on a Sunday. So, uh, yeah, so then sometimes uh, we would, some, some of us, like older guys, would take a whole bunch of the younger ones out to the West End to some gay bars. And, and when we arrived in the group of 10 people, that everybody would part, you know, they would. <laughs> all the people inside would move away and create a space. Like, it was really strange because I don't think they'd seen this sort of statement by a whole bunch of Asians walking in and trying to occupy a space in a gay bar. We're going to move on and I want to talk about some sort of an outlook, how your outlook on relationships has changed. Do you think it's challenging to be in a relationship with an artist? I'm sure it is because they're uh, completely obsessed with themselves. I know I am. <laughs> and no, it's true. And I'm, I I'm, can behave very badly. And I've been reminded of this. So like, uh, I don't ask my friends how they are. You know, I assume if they want to tell me how they are, they're going to tell me. Because I am doing that all the time. I'm always publicly, you know, everything's happening very publicly. So I don't wait for you to ask me how I am. I'm busy telling you. So I never ask you how you are. So that's caused a lot of upset that I'm not yeah. interested in your problems. So I'm just interested in my, what I'm doing, which is kind of yeah. true. Yeah. I think artists kind of are like that. I don't know if that's a cliche. It sounds like a cliche somehow, but... I think they do get very involved, let's say. And it can happen outside of the normal 24-hour clock. So yeah. uh, it can be very disruptive to somebody who's not like that and who's trying to have a 9-to-5 life and all of that. And 
And I've been lucky that uh, there was no uh, children and divorces and all those kind of big financial burdens happening to me. So I've been very, I've been able to completely be self-absorbed in myself because I don't have other people to worry about. I mean, I do now because I got married. The husband looms very largely now. But before that, uh, no, I was just... uh... But on the other hand, I didn't... uh, I wasn't very good at being, like, just endlessly having random sex. I'm not very good at that. So I I like to find somebody who I can have reasonably good sex with. Doesn't doesn't have to be fantastic. And then I just keep having the same person uh, for sex. So that has created a different set of... Uh, crises in the past, you know, uh, like I've sexually dated somebody for two years and then and then they tell me that they're now in love. But then I have to say, but this was not about that. I was really just having sex, you know. I was having kind of casual sex over an extended period of time. But, so that can be problematic. On the other hand, so now if I went to, if I went to a sauna, then uh, I've been to, you know, when, when I used to go to the big chariots, I I sit by the pool with a coffee and meet somebody and have a long chat and, and then I just go home because I, I talk myself out of doing anything. I've just been busy yakking with somebody <laughs> like we're doing here and then that was good enough and then I'd go home and then I'd managed not to get laid. Wait, so do you have, I personally have criteria when it comes to relationships and what I want in somebody as a partner. Did you ever have that? For me, it was, I was a massive fan. I don't know if you know, there's a uh, performance visual artist by the name of Marina Abramovich. Yeah. And she talks about the fact, because with Ule, she was in a relationship with him, she says, never fall in love with an artist. She says, never have a relationship with an artist, never do anything. And I don't know why, I've just always listened to that. Well, I think uh, for most of my adult life, my experience of actual sex with uh, other Asians, either here or in India, was very bad, the quality of it. because once I was introduced to douching and having a glass of wine before the sex in Canada, it was very bourgeois and proper and hot towels and everything. Hot and towels? Then, Wait, what's then, hot towels? This is Canada. They've, you know, they've, they've, it's very cold and they have central heating at a time when they didn't over here in this country. Oh, so it was all oh, very, okay. very secure and warm and comforting and then you go back to somewhere like India and then they, and they still want to throw you behind the bush and so I'm thinking no I don't think so I'm grown past this now so you're on a premium uh, level you're now on a five-star married like hotel well to- uh, I just discovered the joys of you know of things like I don't know of uh, of cuddling and other just of like you know the whole uh play thing in all of that and so when you go to Asia or South Asia in the public setting often there's a sense of urgency because so it has to be over quickly because you it's risky being out there yes and so most people you meet their main object is to ejaculate as fast as possible and then it's, they're done you know so I used to have guys through the internet arrived at my front door in Delhi and I had one guy came in his trousers on the way to the bedroom so by the time we got to the bedroom he was done and then I said what and they're like not interested in you anymore because they're done so that's what Indian men can be like gay or straight so so I thought no thank you I'm not having sex with this lot they can sing and dance in Bollywood doesn't matter but they got terrible sex so I didn't really have much sex with it. I wasn't inclined to. And so uh, 
it all happened accidentally. I had a show in India in 2004, and I was uh, seduced by somebody when I wasn't watching, and he was very nice. And then next thing I knew, I was moving to India for his sake. I keep doing that. It's true. I've done this three times. I shouldn't do this. It's a very bad idea. I move countries for somebody, you know, which is very daft for a grown-up person to do. <laughs> that's a criteria. I feel like that's your criteria. You need to be in a relationship with somebody where you can move, relocate. They, uh, yeah, yeah. But it's it's a little bit unnerving. Anyway, so so then I got to India. Then he wasn't interested anymore. But by then I was in India, so then I just stayed, and then I discovered a whole other side to it. But uh yeah i have done i guess i have this streak in me so it's a bit worrying because what if the next guy is from mexico i suddenly i'll be living in mexico you know I, yeah well hopefully there is no next guy because you're married oh yeah that's true i'm married there won't be a next guy and also <laughs> I'm, I'm really getting on now so i doubt it there'll be <laughs> he's been very good to work with so we're going back to the work idea we did a collaboration oh, project He's becoming one. Uh, when I met him, he was a social worker, but because of complicated reasons. So we end up here in London and then the kind of work he did in Delhi, which was to work with <clears> HIV, <throat> people in the underclass, you know, in Hindi, uh, that wasn't going to work here so well. Uh, so he went to arts because I'm involved with art schools also. Then it just seemed like, and he was interested in art, you know, I think also because it comes from a different class altogether. So unfortunately in India, not, very few people have opportunities to do arts and that kind of thing. Most people have to find some kind of living. It's very quickly after school. So uh, that's what he had to do. So anyway, so he's had the opportunity here to uh, do an art degree. So he did. And now he's doing a PhD at the RCA. So that's great. But in between, we did a, an art project collaboratively. So that actually did work because it wasn't competitive and... Uh, we both took pictures and we both contributed uh, our contacts into the mix and our different backgrounds. So between us, we covered a huge socio-political range. In the city, this was about Delhi. That's that book we did about Delhi. And we didn't take credit for our pictures. The pictures are just jointly credited. It's not like my picture or his picture. And then that turned into an art show that has traveled in in the US and it went to India to the Kochi Biennial. So that was wow. quite good, where we could speak in Kochi. So in that way, look, India has changed dramatically. So uh, in Kochi, the two of us spoke as artists, as collaborators, but also as a gay couple who were from, from India. And we can do this in Hindi, so we can do it in the lingo if we have to. So yeah, it's completely, I mean, since how I remember it in the 80s and 90s as being so oppressive. It's, a lot has changed. We're going to move on to your photography career now. And we're going to talk okay. about photography. What would your earliest memory of photography be? And at what age did you kind of, or what point in life did you kind of decide, actually, this is the work I'm going to go into? And then I have a third question, which I can either tell you right now or later, which is, did you intend your work to have the, the thread that it has right now? Well, the earliest memory is actually of, of movies, because that's all I had when I grew up in 1960s Delhi. There was no television. There was no photography gallery. Yes. Uh, my, we didn't go to galleries anyway. There was, uh, there was basically, it was cinema. And it was big, colorful, blockbustery, Bollywoody cinema, and there was lots of it. So that uh, I was really taken by that, you know, 
and they were very emotional and I really fancied the guys. So I think the idea of color and narrative and storytelling comes from there. Because there's such melodramas, aren't they, basically? Yes. Uh, and in terms of photography, I think when I was in high school in Delhi, I had a had a best friend and we somehow had some kind of dark room set up for a while and we took we both had slightly older sisters and who had who used to buy these sort of Indian equivalents of seventeen magazine, you know, like teenage glosses. Like teen so, Vogue. Yeah, so so they were quite happy to model for us instead of uh, home homemade Indian domestic glamour curls that we would photograph. And then that was it. And then the next that's my earliest memory of photography, literally, but then it didn't seem to be going anywhere as such, except there was a camera in the house. I guess my parents, my father, there were family albums and snaps being taken. And then when we were in Canada, I became very interested again in cinema because the, the university had this amazing film program for the very cheaply you could see everything. So I did it on, this now was European and world kind of art cinema, not Bollywood. And then the photography I got, and then I couldn't make films. I think my first idea was movies, but I was never in a place where it was feasible. They always seemed to come from elsewhere. Uh, but so I had a best, my best gay friend in university, uh, who's also a literary guy, who was also interested in the movies. So he and I decided we would do it with stills. <coughs> so I bought a camera and I bought a little enlarger. And then we began, he would write stories or little narratives and we began to make some work, uh, photo-based little sequences, and then he would write text that I'd put underneath. And it was all to do with being young and gay and our lifestyle, basically. And, and then I was educating myself through, through books, through photo books, how to, the technical side and also the art side. And because we were so into gay liberation, I was trying to find gay, some evidence of some gay history of photography, you know, just for myself. And I found one or two examples. And so, but then really I began to take pictures in a public way for the gay liber for our group. We had a magazine at college and it needed photographs. And I said, oh, I'll take the photographs. So then I began to photograph, you know, like documentary things, music, demonstrations and voluntary groups and all of that kind of things. So, uh, and what was going on in the bars. So I did that and then suddenly I, did, I was like semi-professional in the sense I had an audience and my picture would appear. But I was studying business because, you know, I was middle-class Indian kid and... Still wanting to. And the choices were engineering, medicine or business. And I figured out business was the fastest degree and the quickest way out of home was business. So I did that. So I, I have a BCom in accounting, not in art. Oh, wow. So, yeah, I'm an accountant. That's my big secret. There we go. Now, everybody, guys, <laughs> um, please go to Sunil for your self-assessment tax returns at the end of yeah, the year. Sunil exactly. will take care of all of them. And <laughs> I, can do, I can do four-figure, four-column accounts. That's why I got all the... I, later on in London, I was so handy getting all these arts grants. I can do because, the numbers. Oh, yes. Yeah. I'm never good at the grant section of it. I just usually have a beneficiary, which I usually just send that to <laughs> And then they just take care of that. <laughs> so, yeah, so that's, uh, so it was all like, so that was the early-ish. I've gone beyond the early-ish, but I think the, the striking thing for me has always been the kind of the color and the storytelling part of uh, what I, that's what I got from Bollywood cinema <laughs> that stayed till now. I'm going to go back to 
when you did your first ever photography job that you got paid for, what did you spend that money on? Just out of curiosity. Do you remember? Was it to buy a lens? Was it you just went and like, I don't know, bought yourself a new outfit or things like that? Do you remember what you did with your first ever paycheck? Well, there are two kinds of firsts. One is when I was putting myself through college. Okay. So, you know, I had to do a bit of, I did some work when I was, then went back to art school when I came here. Uh, and as I was mature, then like 24, I had to do, do something, you know, yeah. so, uh, and I found an outlet. And then there was the, the first time I worked after I left college. So <clears throat> I think the most exciting thing I did when I was a student was to have my picture. I was trying to make pictures of gay men in Delhi. I'd gone back in 1918 and I was trying to make some pictures of gay men. Nobody wanted to be in the picture. It was really impossible. Mm-hmm. So I'd, I'd shot my friend from behind and cut his head off in this cruising, one of my favorite cruising grounds when I grew up. I had it in my portfolio and I was, I was hustling, you know, picture editors in London for work. Mm-hmm. And the Guardian guy said, that looks interesting. Is there a story? And I said, yeah, there's a story. And then I rushed home and wrote up 500 words about hidden, secret hidden lives of gay men in telly. And they published it. So that was very exciting. So having your picture in the Guardian suddenly with your name on it. And you know, there's a million copies of it everywhere the next day. Uh, there wasn't much money. So I think it probably paid for a few rolls of film in those days. There you go. <laughs> no, I was just saying that so this printing skill that I had. Yeah. It was mystery. I mean, it kind of... Digital came along and so cameras became, basically cameras want to become smarter all the time and uh, take the picture for you. So I think a lot of people equate photography with the camera and the taking of pictures, which have become completely automatic things. So the phone does take amazing pictures all by itself virtually. But my, as I said, my interest as an artist is in the printmaking part of it. And that it can't do automatically. Uh, Over the years, I've come to appreciate that uh, print on the wall as opposed to, you know, like that. That it's it's on paper and it's something that you live with over time. So, yeah, so the technology has changed a lot and it's become much more accessible. Uh, The the photo, the the photo taking part, and especially, I think when I was doing it in the early days, it was a kind of an elite occupation because it was bloody expensive. The cameras were expensive, you know, buying photographic paper was expensive. So not many people could afford to do it. And I think digital has made it much more accessible. It's, you know, it's more economic and it doesn't cost you to take hundreds of pictures anymore, you know, on a digital camera. And because it's on the phone, now everybody has it. So, and again, in India, that drama played out much more dramatically because the scale was so huge. Mm-hmm. So in a, in a country where there was just a very limited number of studios and professional kind of photographers, suddenly 800 million people have a phone and take a picture. So, you know, they're awash with pictures. They can make their own pictures in, in a way they never could. So that's quite revolutionary. Uh, and we only see some of it. I mean, cameras almost don't need us there anymore. You know, oh, yeah, you say need... that. Yeah. yeah. And, but, but printing does, because you make a lot of decisions. You know, very, it's very complex. 
I've, I've, I've had to move, I've moved from analog to digital, by the way. So I finally was able to afford to uh, buy a large format printer for the studio here. And I can, I no longer have to go to the lab. So, uh, so that was very worrying. And there was a time for several years in between when I wasn't doing my own darkroom and I was having to give files to the lab and then printers their printers would make things the way they want to make them and they try to persuade you that yes that was the best color they could get and all this so so yeah so i feel like more i could be more nuanced with my work now uh so i'm quite liking it i'm uh i'm quite excited actually because i can now i'm also just getting rid of all my analog cameras so i'm able to shoot something and print it without going anywhere it's been very handy in the lockdown i can send out prints from here without having to go to a shop Okay, in regards to the progression of technology, do you think we're now in a space where we can, you could, or anybody could, because everybody is now a hashtag photographer, uh, when they take pictures through the iPhone, do you think you could actually create a profound or a substantial piece of gallery work just from your phone? One. And two is, has your ever has your vision as an artist or as a photographer or an author all of these titles above and some that i haven't mentioned have they ever been affected by legal situations so such as like there's a picture you've taken on the street of somebody and they just haven't signed an nda or any sort of thing and you know you just can't use that image or because of funding there's there's a sort of like a backlash or financially you just can't carry out a situation um, so yeah, those, those two questions. Yeah, you can. I think there's, uh, uh, basically an, uh, an image is an image at the end of the day. It doesn't matter if it came from a phone or a Hasselblad camera, you know, it, uh, <clears throat> yeah, I'm not bothered. I'm very promiscuous. I use anything that's available to make the picture with. So that's the first part. And the second part is, uh, yes, uh, when I shot Christopher Street, there was a naivete and there was a kind of thrill about it. And uh, the idea of the street picture was becoming, uh, was entering the museum world. You know, it's a documentary, that kind of photography was being collected finally by the mu pe people like the Museum of Modern Art. And it was gaining a kind of legitimacy in the art world. Uh, and now, of course, it depends where you are. There's certain limitations have been placed. A lot of questions have been asked about the ethics of taking pictures uh, without people's consent. My dear people have gone from this part of the world to the third world for decades and taken pictures of everything without asking anyone anything. But anyway, I find like in France, it's very strict. Uh, when I made Sun City at the Pompidou Center, mm -hmm. we had to get signed permission for everything even the location oh, yeah. when, I when i when i shot in a park we had to get the park people's authority everywhere for everything uh when i shot in a building we had to get the architect's authority it wasn't just the people no so in, in england it's it's a bit different so if you're in a public street uh people can take pictures of you you can uh but they can't take pictures of you in in a private space so i can't like look over your wall and take a picture of you in your back garden. But if you come out on the pavement, I probably can. And the other key difference here in England, I'm more familiar with England because I've been based here, is that uh, you certainly can't 
use those public pictures to sell to sell a label yes i'm very aware of uh, where i am so uh, there's different taboos in different contexts but there are always some taboos i've never been in a place where you you're completely able to talk what you want to so or show what you want to for example so for example i have a picture of a lesbian couple with a baby which we showed in delhi you know indian lesbian couple wearing saris but with the baby uh uh and it's the been the baby's naked and i we placed him on a pedestal like a cherub and showing him showing that picture in india is no problem but you can't show that in the west because you can't have a naked baby i'd be arrested different cultures have different kind of boundaries about things uh one of the biggest boundaries i face here is that i can't talk about my wonderful gay childhood because i was under age and everybody would think about it but i am going to have a show about it in delhi but let's see if we can have it here can a 10 year old talk about his sex life 50 years later that's tricky that you know so you're i mean so and they people go berserk over here well that was a i did that for therapy also you know because i was sick literally and i find going into the dark room and doing photography healing for myself it was part of my own so the process of making it was a healing process for me and then and then of course because of my uh, generational background of the whole kalib coming out business i'm very conscious that wherever there's stigma about something that you have or you're involved with the best thing you can do is come out about it the worst thing you can do is bottle it up inside so i've had no issue telling everybody i was positive and that had a that became a problem in india because uh, there was so much stigma that middle class people would say i'm inviting you home for supper but do not mention it to my parents they'll really freak out like don't tell them that because i used to tell people you know and i decided to tell people in a very random way because people casually ask you the first thing people ask you is how are you right and i would i began to respond by saying well i'm hiv positive but it's not acting up today i'm fine and then <laughs> and then joe would drop up and they didn't know what to say you know and then then the people used to be afraid of you remember people were afraid of being near and all that so that was all so no so that was fine i think that the naked picture was difficult because i never done that before and the reason why it's me also is because i couldn't one of my problems here has always been a bit like india is that no no asian gay asian wanted to be in the pictures back in the 90s nobody was out enough you know because i because who knows where the picture will go because i can't promise you that it's going to be just in the photographer's gallery nobody will see it because of course everybody now goes and takes a picture of the picture and it puts it on the internet you have no idea who's going to see it so basically i never i could it was very hard for me to find agents so just i think i found three people in the whole decade who were willing to be in some pictures and then to be naked and then to be hiv definitely not so uh, I ended up using myself and uh, so at first I was kind of nervous about it but once I saw it up I realized that actually uh, it wasn't me it's a kind of avatar and it gave me a way of dealing with it through the photography through the picture that I could discuss the the illness in that 
art project like way even finally clinical way and not feel personally you know like it literally i didn't think it was literally it was me which was handy because several people had very mean things to say about that picture like you know maybe i should have gone to the gym before i took that picture or something and obviously i'm not the most well endowed person and not that we as a group are known for that either so i wasn't a good advert for <laughs> asian willies that's for sure so but you know i don't care now i let them think whatever they want so that's me i have too many stories i want to tell and more books that i want to make and it's tragic that i'm 67 cuz uh i feel like i am i better hurry up and start telling the rest of the stories before the time runs out Well, everyone, that brings us to an end, and I hope you enjoyed listening to that as much as I had a blast doing it. I want to say a massive, massive thank you to Snail for his time, his patience, especially in the end because we had some technical issues, and he was super gracious about it all. Again, to mention, Chai with Rai is a pre-recorded live show, so to watch any of the videos from the show, simply go to YouTube and type in Chai with Rai to find the relevant episode. All of the information about the guest, the video, and other bits and bobs, I will pop all of that in the bio. Make sure to follow, share, comment, and subscribe to the podcast. Your support really helps the show and the message of it grow. Thank you again so much for supporting and listening to this. And as I always say, breathe in, breathe out. I must go. <laughs> Which basically means now I must go. I have copyrighted that, and I will sue. joking. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you have a great rest of your time. Stay curious until next time.